Commissioner for Independence talk by Andy Anderson. Um, can I remind those that the session will be recorded and if you don't want to have your video involved in it, just uh, listen to the talk. Also, there will be questions at the end of it and if you want to ask a question, can you indicate that in the chat function in Zoom? Just to indicate that you want to ask a question and we'll read that off in terms. You don't have to put your question in. Okay, that's all the house rules, so to speak. And I'll hand over to Mary to introduce Andy. Andy Anderson is, is quite a... Um, an expert on the, the topic of currency. Probably quite a lot of you on Monday got the National and saw his letter. He was, he was one of what they call the, the long letters in the National. And he very clearly put down all um, four different issues that we have to look at. He put it in a way that people could understand it, um, who might not necessarily be right into currency the way he is. He's written uh, two books on currency. Um, one was A Sound Currency for an Independent Scotland, and his most recent one was A Clean Currency for a Prosperous Scotland. And um, before that, he was also a campaigner for getting rid of the tolls in the Sky Bridge. So um, without any further um, introduction, I'll just give you over to you. Oh, by the way, he's written as George, but he is Andy. So I'll give you Andy Anderson. Right. That change our name just to confuse everybody. But in a sense, the currency issue is one that confuses a lot of people as well, because a lot of people don't recognize some of the obvious things about currency. And so what I'm going to do today is just talk about currency and what it really is, and the implications for it, and how important it is for the, um, for the independence movement. Um, the first confusion, which is very common, is that money and wealth are the same thing. If you've got money, you've got wealth. Wealth and money are the same thing. They're not actually the same thing at all. They're very different things. And when you look at the issue in economic terms, you soon realize that it is important to keep a quite distinct position between wealth and money. Let me explain that in a simple term. If you were marooned on an uninhabited desert island and you were trying to save things from the ship before it went down and there was a big chest of uh, pound notes newly minted and there was a chest of old carpentry tools, which of them would be of value to you in that situation? It's obvious, isn't it? The money's no good. There's no other people there. You can't exchange the money for anything. It's the capital tools. They can, you can use them. You can do something with them. And they are wealth. They are something that is real wealth. Because wealth is the things, the goods, the food that we need, the uh, car that we've got for transport, the things that we've got. Money is just a means of exchanging between them. It's not itself of any value. So money has no intrinsic value. So when we're talking about money or currency, we're talking about something which doesn't itself have value, 
But it has what economist Adam Smith pointed out very early on. It has exchange value. And what's that? What is exchange value? Exchange value is that it represents other value, other values in the market. So the goods and services that are exchanged in the market are represented by money. So if I want to get something in, in, the, in the economy, I produce something, I sell that into the market, I get money for that, and I use the money to buy somebody else's goods and services. The money itself is not what I want. What I want is the means of getting access to other goods and services. So that's how money works, and that's what it is. Money in our current society is totally distorted and used in different ways. It's used itself as a commodity. That is wrong. The very idea of a money market is a nonsense because it, puts, it makes money a commodity, and money is not a commodity. And that's, the, that's one of the problems of the financial system that we are in at the present time. So we need to be clear about that. So money is really a means of exchange. Now, that's where it gets its value. So how do you measure it? In, if we're talking in terms of uh, the domestic economy, like the Scottish economy, and we were producing money, in Scotland, we would produce paper money, the same as they do for the pound or the dollar. They are all just bits of paper. None of them have any value, any intrinsic value. They have exchange value. Money has uh, no intrinsic value. That's clear. All money. That's true of all money. Now, if we created money in Scotland, if we produced a new a batch of money. We would produce all this paper, we would put it into the banks, and let's say at midnight on a particular date, that money would be de determined as uh, the, uh, the, the currency of the country. It would get legal tender at one point in time. It would become legal tender. Now, up until it becomes legal tender, up until 12 o'clock at night, it is worthless. It is meaningless. And it cannot be used in exchange, and it's just bits of paper. But the minute it gets its legal tender, and legal tender is withdrawn from the pound sterling and put onto the new currency, it suddenly becomes wealthy. It would, the currency would be worth something like 600 billion pounds in a minute, changes from valueless to 600 million pounds. But it's not the money that has changed, it's not the paper that has changed, that is exactly the same as it was before. What has changed is that it is now legal tender and it is now a means of exchanging goods. It is the proper entitled means of exchanging goods in Scotland. So all the goods in Scotland, all the goods and services, lumped together, they are now equal to the paper that you've just produced. So you produce an amount of paper and you've got all these goods and services and the two are in balance. 
they have to be the same value because this one's got no value. Money's got no value. So all the value is in the goods and services. So if you weigh up, if you count up the value of the goods and services, they must be the same as that because that has nothing. But that represents them. Is that clear? That's really the trick of money. That's the fundamental thing. That's true about all money. It's not just true about what we're talking about in Scotland. It's true about money as a whole. That's how it functions. Now, if you get to the basics like that, the, you then come to another important question about money, which sometimes confuses a lot of people. Inflation. People say, well, if the government makes money, the government can make money just like that, and you just get paper and print it and turn it into money, um, then it'll cause inflation, will it not? This is what causes inflation. Inflation is a process described as too much money chasing too few goods in the economy. So if you've got a lot of money, and if you've got a balance with the goods and services today, balancing the money, and if you change the amount of money and double the amount of money overnight, what happens to the value of the goods and services? Because it's supposed to have to remain the same because one is representing the other. So if the amount of money doubles overnight and the amount of goods and services doesn't, then you've got too much money chasing too few goods in the market, right? You've got inflation. Prices will rise to meet the difference. They have to, right? That's how, that, that's the theory behind that. So people will say, well, if you, the government produces more money, all it will do is cause inflation. That's not strictly true. It can be true in certain circumstances, but only in circumstances where it produces no, more money and doesn't produce any more goods. It's only if one moves the money and the goods and services don't, that that happens. One of the examples we have in Britain is what happened with the Labour government after the Second World War, the Attlee government, came in in 1945, was out of power in 1951. And in that six-year period, they produced a great deal of money. They created the health service, they nationalised the coal mines, they nationalised a number of other industries. They gave us power, power companies and all of that. All of that cost huge amounts of money. Where did they get that money from? Well, they printed it. They printed it. That's where they got it from. They nationalised the Bank of England and they got control of the money supply and they printed the money. And as a result of doing that, they were able to put in great sums of money into public expenditure. And they, for the first time, created full employment. Full employment in Britain for the first time was created at that period and, and maintained for a very long period of time, even after they were out of office. They gave us the health service, they gave us a whole lot, whole lot of assets. We were later sold to people then later sold off these assets, but the assets belonged to us. And it was all from that money, but there was no inflation. 
there was no inflation during the whole of that period. And yet they were producing a lot more money. So if money, creating money causes inflation, why didn't it cause inflation then? But the answer to that is simple. They were creating more money, but they were growing the economy at the same time. The money that they were creating was sucking people in from unemployment into employment. They were producing more goods. If you produce more goods, the goods and services rise. If the goods and services rise, at the same time as the money's rising, you've got no inflation. Prices stay the same. It's that balance that is important. And if that balance is maintained, fine. Now, at the present time, we've got unemployment. Much of it is disguised unemployment. They'll tell you that it's 4%, 3% or whatever. That's nonsense. The real unemployment is much larger. What is um, the, uh, the type of employment that we've got now? Uh, people who are on uh, unlimited hours contracts, you know, you're called in when they want you, etc. That's unemployment. It's called different, you know, but it is unemployment. So we have a much higher level of unemployment. If we, we brought that, if we created money to bring that, those people into real employment, in real resources, and created the goods and the services that go with that, we could grow the money supply at the same time without inflation. So that's what's important in the context of looking at money. Now, we can't do that in Britain today, because in Britain today, we don't control the money supply. The big international banks control that. Not us, not the government, not the British government, not in Westminster. You know, when they told us we couldn't have the pound in the last referendum, I was pleased actually that we couldn't because it was, the pound was a disaster. For us to have shared in it would have, would have been a disaster. As the uh, as uh, Alex Salmond was arguing at the time, had we got that, we would have got a real headache in terms of independence if we were tied to the pound. We needed to be out of it anyway, but they said we couldn't get in. But they don't control the pound. Politicians don't control the pound. The pound is an international currency. It's open to everybody. Everybody can use it. And because it's an international currency, you can't, the government can't control it and they can't tie it to their economy. Now, what does that mean when you're trying to control inflation? What does it mean that you can't control the amount of money? We in Scotland, if we are having our own currency, our currency would be like most currencies in the world. It would be a domestic currency only. It wouldn't be a currency that you could use in France or in, uh, in America or in China. It would be a currency that you only used in Scotland. It would be limited to the Scottish economy. If it was limited to the Scottish economy and operated within Scotland, it could then be controlled by the government, right? And the, and the money supply and the arrangements in relation to money and production could be kept in line. Now, uh, that is not a strange idea. In fact, it's the most common idea in the world. Little countries like, uh, like Iceland, population size of Edinburgh, it has its own currency. 
but it doesn't use that currency internationally. It uses international currencies such as the pound and the dollar and the euro. And that's what we would do. We wouldn't use our currency. We would use these international currencies while they still exist. It has to be said that the international financial system is in deep trouble and may well collapse before we get independence. If we get it at the end of next year or the year after, there may well be no pound sterling. There are real problems in the international system. So that we don't want to be involved in that or tied up in that. The Growth Commission more or less has this idea of as being for a period of time in sterilization where we're using sterling. Sterling might not be there to be used. The reality is we've got to build our new Scotland on realities, not on, not on mythology. And unfortunately, the, the pound is in that category now. Uh, we need to be in a, a quite different position. So that's the first thing, get our own currency and get control of it and run it. Um, now, uh, what's the important reason that you can see for the government having control of the money supply uh, for Scotland, controlling its own money supply and being able to ensure that the money supply and the goods and services being produced in Scotland were kept in balance? because that's, uh, that's our theory that we do that, that the central bank in Scotland keeps these things in balance as part of its duty to do that, and we organize the economy in that way. The first thing about that obviously is that we can then bring into employment all the people who are unemployed, because if you've got unemployed people in your country, and if you are un underemployed, underemployed, which is very important as well. People who are only part-time employed, but they haven't, they're not able to do what they want to do. They can't switch jobs to a job that's more attractive to them and to which they may be more suited because the, the job market is so restricted. But if they had the option of going to different jobs, etc., and if uh, job opportunities were opened up, the economy would develop faster and would be opened up. And it's the lack of money in our system that allows that to happen. We could control that and make that happen. If we did that, we could do what the Attlee government did from 1945 to 1951. They grew the economy significantly. And pe people ended up wealthier the economy during that period was more equal. People, earnings grew, trade union power grew, because if you've got full employment, people have got more power, workers have got more power to decide whether they're going to continue with this employer who's not treating them well, or whether they're going to move on to some other employer. So that means that an employer has got to be very careful about how he treats workers when, work, when workers are short and hard to get in the economy. So an economy that's growing like that and at full capacity and with full employment, and bear in mind, we had that full employment in Britain right up from that period of the Labour government, right up into the 70s before it 
was destroyed in the late 60s and 70s before it, it started to deteriorate. And it was done on that basis. And the economic reasons for doing it still exist today. We could do it today. So we, if we had our own currency, that would put us in the position to plan our economy and it would help, help us to grow. I'll just mention a couple of other things. I'm going to give people plenty of time to ask questions because I'm sure there's a lot of questions arise from that. But let me just mention a couple of other things as well about that. If you operate in that way, then you're, uh, first of all, you change the dynamics of the, of the labour market. Because if you've got a wide choice of where you work, that means that you've got more power. And in those circumstances, trade unions and other bodies that represent working people get more power. So politically, the, 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 the country moves to the left in many respects. And in terms of equality, in terms of the, the gap between the richest and the poorest, that gets shorter, not dramatically, it didn't dramatically get shorter between 45 and uh, 51, but it did get shorter the, for the first time. Ever since then, it's been going, and now it's growing extensively in the other direction. The rich are getting fabulously rich, and the poor are getting poorer. So we need to change that, that uh, dynamic. And we, that's one of the things that we do if we, do, if we organize ourselves this way around. The other thing that people will be saying and thinking about is, well, wait a minute, if we're just doing this in Scotland and we're just using our own currency, what happens if we want to go to England or we want to go to France or we want to go on holiday? What happens if, because our currency can't be used there. So what happens, how do you do that? Well, in actual fact, that is dead simple. It's not at all difficult. You do it more or less exactly the same as you do it now. You go over with your card to the United States and you put your card in the machine and your card, and your card gives you dollars, it doesn't give you Scottish pound notes. If you put the same card in the machine in Edinburgh, it gives you Scottish pound notes. But if you go there, it gives you dollars. But it would today, wouldn't it? You do that today with your, with your card and get the, the other currency. The difference is that what's happening today is that all of this is organized through the, through the banking system and they charge you a fee to change one currency into the other and they settle it through your bank and you don't notice the difference except that you pay a wee bit more for the currency that you're getting for the exchange rate. The system after we came out of, of that system and set up our own arrangement would be exactly the same because the exchange would come, but it would come through the Central Bank of Scotland. So every exchange that operated would operate through the Central Bank of Scotland. And that's where the, the exchange would take place. And there'd be no charge for changing currencies in that system. So you would get, in terms of actually your experience of how it would work is that it would work exactly the same. The notes that you would have would be Scottish notes 
they wouldn't be used, you couldn't use them in England, uh, they wouldn't be exchangeable in England, you would have to go to the bank in England, stick your card in and get pounds sterling out of there. And that would be exchanged within your bank through the banking system, through the central bank in Scotland. So it would operate that way. Same would happen in international trade. In international trade, people say, oh, well, uh, would, the, would the Scottish pound be recognized uh, by the Chinese and, uh, and the uh, Americans and the, the French and other? Would they recognize your pound? Well, they wouldn't be using our pound. What they would be looking for, the Chinese or the French or the Americans, would be whiskey, salmon, you know, uh, beef, uh, whatever Scotland produces. That's what they would be interested in. And they would make their purchases. And all of their purchases would go through the central bank system. So their currency would be, you know, they, they, you would sell your whiskey and you would get a customer in America buying it and he would pay in dollars and you would get it in uh, Scottish notes from your bank. But the international, uh, the central bank would hold that currency and they would use it in exchange for other goods and services. That's what they call the balance of payments in the trade system. And that would be operated through the central bank in Scotland. And it's that that would be important to determine the long-term strength or weakness of the Scottish economy. It wouldn't be the money that would determine that. It would be the goods and services that you, if people still wanted to buy them and you could still sell them, then that's where your strength would lie. That's where your wealth comes from and that's where your strength would lie. So that's a brief outline of a vision of how the system would work in, uh, in Scotland if you went ahead and had your own currency and kept control of that currency through the government, right? Now, I'll answer questions on that. Mary, has Mary a... yeah, would you like to have a go? Um, so you were saying about um, uh, growing the economy alongside the money. Um, how would we actually start to do that? I mean, a lot of our old economy was based on um, manufacturing, which is now largely abroad. Um, we uh, service, it's the service sector and so on. We don't know how it's going to be um, handled with the pandemic. It's in a, in a sorry place at the moment. Um, I know we've got stuff like renewables. And of course, we've always had a good balance of trade with exports and, and the goods we produce and so on. But how would we um, kickstart the economy once we once we made the money we've got to at the same time kickstart the economy so what would that be based on where would we'd have to suddenly bring in a lot of new jobs because a lot of the jobs we've got at the moment are non-jobs and and so on just there to bring down the figures fake jobs so how would we actually um do what the, do what they did do what Attlee did after the war and and grow the economy he was um after the war, there was a lot of industry that they had to make and so on. You could base it in that. But our shipbuilding's gone for the moment, which is a disgrace with our great big coastline. But how would we actually start that when we're um, just bringing in the money 
how, how did you do it in time? <laughs> well, in actual fact, now is in many ways very like the same period of after the war because, as you say, at that time there was huge need for replacing all the damaged infrastructure, etc. But we now need to change our infrastructure completely because if we don't, then we are going to be hit with another major problem, which is the environment. Can't sustain the economy that we've got now, the way that we're doing it. So we're going to have to make major changes in any event. So now is as good a time as any to start making those changes. And that would mean, what it means, and we can all see it, um, is change the way that we're producing power, for example. We've, Scotland has already gone a long way down this track and done a lot of good work. That needs to be pushed further as well. That needs to be done. We need to do it in transport. We need to have electric or some other types of cars that are, you know, that are not polluting the environment, etc. Now that's going to cost, we need better homes for that same reason. So that's going to cost a lot of money and a lot of, a, a lot of work and a lot of effort. But we've got the people, we've got the resources. So all we need to do is to produce this worthless paper to create, to stimulate the process and we get people into employment. We get, um, we identify with areas where investment needs to be done and we will need to do that whatever in the very near future because the economies on the slide will need to have investment so invest, uh, uh, but investment not left to the market. The problem we have at the moment is that everybody leaves it to the market. And big business will decide what they're going to do. It needs to be in the new Scotland, a, an economic plan directed by the government, like the Atlee government. You've got to spend, invest in this area, invest in that area, etc. Still a mixed economy. Still, a, 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 you know, a, a free market mixed economy, but 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 in the Keynesian model used by the Labour government, a, a government that plans the economy, plans the investment, and if you put the investment in in a planned way, you will get the response. I don't know if people are aware of the term of the multiplier in investment. Is that is that are people familiar with that idea? Well, let me explain it. Let me explain it. If you if you decide to the, the first one good, good example in history is the Hoover Dam, where the, the, the government decided to spend X amount of dollars, public money, on building the Hoover Dam because of the Great Depression in America. Once they spent if you spend $100 and you give it to people who have had very low incomes and, and very poor, and they suddenly get $100 in their hands, they then go and spend it, don't they? If you're very rich and you get $100, you put it in the bank or you look to see where you can invest it. But if you're poor and you get $100, there's things you immediately need, food, housing, clothes, you spend it, or the bulk of it, you spend. And what that does is that it stimulates the demand in the economy. And then other people get an increase in their incomes. 
one man's one man's spending is another man's income. So the system multiplies, and in certain circumstances, particularly in circumstances where you put the money into low earners, you get a high multiplier effect, something like five times. So in Scotland, if we put the money in the right area at the right time, then we would get, if for every billion pounds that we invested, we'd get five billion pounds uh, in, in the economy working. Is that clear? Yeah. Yep. Okay, thanks Thank for that. Thank yeah. you. Andy, um, when you're saying about spending money and uh, to produce uh, or increase the economy, if you're right, the Atlee government, a lot of the things they were doing were in public ownership. If you instead spend money and give it to foreign companies and all that kind of thing to buy say they were building power stations for you or whatever, and it's, would you still be getting the benefit the same degree or does it have to be in more, more public ownership? Uh, good, that's a good question. Because there's a lot of argument about that, public expenditure, bad, private investment, good. In actual fact, in real terms, as far as the economy is concerned, it doesn't matter whether it's public or private investment provided that it is invested in particular ways and has and the multiplier is high and it works in particular ways so it doesn't really matter from an economic point of view but from a control point of view from an economic management point of view it is very important that the government is at the center of the of the of the investment plan and that the government is controlling that now if you're going for big, long-term investment, you can't use the market. The private, the private sector can't cope with that. That's, that's one of its big weaknesses. If you're going for long-term big investment, such as changing the whole system of, uh, of uh, fuel for cars, and you're changing the whole system so that the cars, all the cars are now in 10 years going to be different, you're going to have to put in vast amounts of investment. That has to be controlled by government. It can be controlled by the private sector. But of course, if that happens, what will then happen is that the private sector will, will gain from the multiplier in exactly the same way as the public sector will. If you put money into the public sector and it creates more wealth, that wealth will go into the hands of people who will spend it in the private sector, in the pubs and you know elsewhere. Private run organizations, there's no difference. Once the money is in circulation, it goes it'll develop the whole economy. So in a mixed economy, I would say the important thing is you need control of the investment program to be in the hands of the government. So the big investment decisions have to be in the, in the government's hands um, because that will be effective. The private sector can't do that. But if you do do that, you will grow both the public and the private sector in the process. Thank you. Okay, thanks for that. Next up, we'll have David Howie. Howie. David Howdle. 
Sorry, I beg your pardon. That's too far from my screen. David Hurdle, thanks. Uh, Andy, thank you very much for your talk. That's most interesting. Um, that you dropped something into your talk which um, you didn't elaborate on and which I find intriguing. And that's the idea that the big internationally traded currencies might be in deep trouble and uh, that some of them may cease to exist. And I, I just wonder if you could amplify on that, please. Yes, well, um, I think most people will have seen... Uh, Myself and Ronnie Morrison wrote the book Moving On and published it in 2014. And we, we did that because of the referendum that was coming up that year, because we thought it would be terrible if we got in the pound. And what we did was looked at what had happened in 2007-08 and the crash and what caused the crash. And we looked at that and said, look, we've, all the things that caused the crash are still there. Nothing has been changed. We've got the same cause, thing that, that caused it, and that is the, the fractional reserve banking system. That's where the problem was. And so at that time, six years ago now, we pointed out, look, we're going to have another crash. There's going to be another major crash in the banking system. And it was in that context that we were looking at it. Now, I can now say with a lot more confidence that A, a lot of other people have joined us in pointing out what the cause was of the crash uh, in, um, in 2007 and 8. One of them who's joined us in the argument is the ex-governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. In his book, he identifies a reason for, the, for the, the collapse, one of the reasons for the collapse. And strange enough, the reason he gives is the same one as we give. He uses different languages. He uses a different language, different terminology, but he identifies the same thing as we did. So we saw that coming. We didn't see the COVID-19, but we knew there was going to be another financial problem. And we've got the financial problem now. Right, COVID may well have been a trigger to set it off, but the problem was there and it was coming and it's arrived. It's arrived because the, fra the um, fractional reserve system of banking is fraudulent and it creates a system whereby the banks can create money out of thin air. You know what I was saying to you? If the government creates more money, it has to create more uh, productivity, uh, not productivity, goods and services to go along with that in order to keep the balance. Now, what we have now, and the reason we had the big crash, is that banks make money out of thin air without any connection to the rest of the economy. Now, that creates this problem of inflation. And where does that go? in the economy that we're in now, it goes into property and land. And that's why you can't, in certain parts of Britain, you can't get a house. Working class people can't get a house because the land and property has shot up because of this, the way that they've manipulated the financial system. Now, that has gone just about as far as it could go before the COVID uh, process started. And it only it can only work 
if they keep growing, growing, growing every year. The minute they stop growing, the whole pack of cards collapses. Now, they stop growing. Right? The pack of cards is falling in on itself. You've now seen governments all over the world, Tory governments like, uh, like uh, Boris Johnson. In December last year, Boris Johnson was laughing at the idea that we should, we should invest a few billion pounds when Cor, uh, Corbyn, 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 not Corbyn, Corbyn was saying that in the election. He was saying, spend more money. And, and the Tories were laughing at it. They spent four times as much as he was suggesting already. And there's a lot more to be spent because they're, they're in a hole. And the more they do that, the bigger the hole. So my prediction is that the financial, the international financial system will fall apart. The idea that the, the dollar and the pound and the euro are tied to the dollar in this context, that they can survive as being an international currency of, of value is no longer valid. That's not going to happen. So there has to be a change. Now, I, I can't predict exactly what the change would be, but I can see that it has to be one. But that's a bit deeper than the subject that we're actually addressing. Okay, thanks for that. Next up, we have Mariana. And can I remind people just to keep their questions brief, please, as time's rolling on. Mariana, where are you? Um, yeah, I just really wanted to ask about this business of setting up a central bank. And, I mean, I, I've, we've been looking at the example of Estonia. I think it was Estonia. Somebody was talking about that and how, you know, when they pulled away from the Soviet Union, they very quickly set up their own currency. Um, I think they set it up you know, the central bank before they launched their currency. Really, I'm just, uh, maybe this is more of a legal question, but I, I really want you to ask you whether it's possible that we could be thinking of setting up a central bank now uh, in the hope and expectation that, um, you know, that, that when independence comes, which is hopefully soon, that we have the infrastructure there to start operating our own currency. Uh, do, do you know if that would be legal or not? Because, I mean, there are things like local currencies, like, you know, I believe, like the Bristol Pound or something like that. Yeah. So I just wondered if what your thoughts were on that one. Thank you. Right. Well, first of all, the Bristol Pound and other ideas of that nature are not really adequate for what we're talking about. So we'll put that to one side for the moment. Um, the, you're right that we can't delay any longer with the currency issue without debating and sorting out what we're going to do, how we're going to run the Scottish currency. We've delayed far too long. And we're all the time we delay, and I mean we, I mean the movement as a whole, and the leadership of the movement, which is in the hands of the SNP. The delay in addressing this properly is a problem. And it will get worse as we get towards the referendum. Because the other side will point out that we don't have answers to this question and that question and the other. So let's get the answers now and sort them all out in a row so that we can deal with them because they're not difficult questions and we could deal with them if the SNP would face it. Now, before we can build the central, before we even think about central bank, 
we have to think about how we're going to get the different economists uh, in Scotland, and Scotland has some very good economists, get different views and ideas together and sort out exactly how we're going to approach this question. Everybody's now agreed we're going to have a central bank in our own currency. I mean, if we leave it to, um, to um, the Growth Commission, that, that's going to be years away, you know. But they still agree that that has to be done. If it's going to be done, it's going to be done straight away and it's going to be done without any ifs or buts or tests or anything else. We've got to do it straight away. We've got to do it uh, fairly effectively. Now, if we get everybody together and start talking about it, and now let's talk about this now, it's actually happening. Then if we get people together and draw up how we're going to deal with this, before the referendum, so that we have a programme for the referendum that says this is the currency programme and this is what it's going to mean. It means that we're going to set up our own central bank. It means that we're going to have our own currency. We're going to do that within a, a reasonable period of time. Immediately we get political um, uh, power. Um, but we've got one has to go after that. We have to have political power first. We have to have political independence before we can have economic independence. That has to be the case. Because in a democratic society, if you're going to set up a central bank with all these powers and set up authorities that are going to control that, including, in my view, a written constitution, which is going to overlook how this system works, if we're going to do all of those things, we have to do them democratically. They all have to go through the parliament. They all have to go through the Scottish parliament, line by line, debated and argued, so that we know exactly the powers of the central bank, uh, what, what powers rest in the, the regulators who are going to control the currency. Because if you don't, if you don't do this carefully, one thing you can be sure of, there are people who will do it for you. They'll, they'll do the regulations, they'll do the advising, to suit themselves. The very people who run the system now, the, the British system, they'll be there ready to run it for you, but run it in their interests. If we want to run it in the people's interests, then we've got to start to do the work now and we've got to work on it. We will not get a currency the day after we get independence. We will need a, a good period of time to get all these institutions sorted and in place before we can issue the currency. But we've got to get it right, not quick. Okay, thank you. Next up we have Jane. Hi everyone. Hi, um, I have a lot of conversations about this in the borders, quite understandably, on the practical implications because, you know, there are a lot of people in borders whose daily lives straddle the border and they're worried about what would happen if we had a different currency. And I have the advantage of having lived in the Isle of Man for 26 years, yeah. which is not part of the UK and has its own currency. Yeah. So I can vouch for what Andy was saying is how, how simple it is that, um, you know, you use Mac I use the Manx pound when I was at home and sterling when I was not at home. One thing I wondered whether Andy could comment on, um, as I understand, what the situation was that we could use UK sterling in the Isle of Man, and that was accepted, but not vice versa. 
And my understanding was that that was because the Manx government reserved the right to change the exchange rate. So I wonder if Andy could comment on that. Yeah. Well, the Manx situation, and indeed the Scottish pound situation, that we you know, that we've had, you know, the Scottish pound is not quite what we're looking at in terms of uh, an independent, separate currency, domestic currency. Let's just take the Scottish pound, which people are familiar with. In theory, you could use the Scottish pound anywhere in Britain. You could go into Bristol and use it, and you could use it in Scotland. In practice, a lot of people in London and others who looked at the pound say, I've never seen that before, I'm not having that. That's not currency as far as I'm concerned. So, and any currency needs, needs to be recognised and accepted by people. And if it's not, it doesn't work. So there was a problem in the Scottish one. But the Scottish pound is interesting because it was a full reserve currency in the sense that every pound issued by the banks and it was issued by the banks in Scotland. Every pound issued by the banks in Scotland, a pound sterling was put into Westminster, uh, London, uh, at the, um, the Bank of England. And so it was a full reserve currency, which the, which the, the pound sterling is not, right? So, uh, but it wasn't an effective one from our point of view, from the, Scotland's point of view. This, you're absolutely right that people, people are always worried about money and any changes in the money is going to frighten people. It did when we changed from the decimal system, from the previous system to the decimal. It frightened people. And people certainly on the border who used to buy and sell across the border will think, oh, wait a minute. Or people who, like myself, my pension comes from England. From England. So well, my, my, my works pension, I mean, as well as my state, state pension, my works pension call. So people will think, oh, well, you know, what, how does this happen? How does it work? But it actually isn't very difficult at all. People will play it up. You know, people will say to you, oh, there's going to be big problems. It's going to be difficult. But it really isn't very difficult. And you just have to look around the world and you see so many examples of countries that have set up their own currency and done it very quickly and very effectively and with very little problems, very little real problems in terms of the currency. That's because what I started off by saying is that currency has no value. It has no intrinsic value. It's the economy itself which has the value. And if the, if the value is in the economy and if the economy is strong, you can adjust the, the currency easy enough to, to meet its requirements. So it won't be a problem. Uh, but you're right. People need to be uh, need to be relaxed about the term uh, the terms used. What, what what do we call a unit? Do we call it uh, a pound or do we call it uh, my one of my colleagues, uh, um, uh, Ronnie Morrison, calls it the mark when he refers to it in our book Moving On. He suggests that the mark would be a better term for the Scottish note. Well, historically, there's good reasons for that. But um, really, I, I, would much, I want things not to change in terms of uh, the names. I want the fundamentals to change, but I don't want to change the names. So I would rather that it was the pound, the Scottish one, 
that they saw that people in Scotland saw, and people in Scotland are used to see pounds that are different. You know, so if they saw a pound that was different from the other one, and fine. The people in the border areas, if they were convinced um, that really there's no problem, there's no difficulty, um, it, would, it would transfer one day. We'd start off on a par, the one pound, uh, the Scottish pound for one pound sterling. We'd start off on that basis. It wouldn't necessarily last on that basis for a, for a great length of time. It would change over time. But the exchange arrangement wouldn't be difficult. Okay, thanks for that. Just one comment I'd like to make on that is that if you look to Northern Ireland, that's the exact same situation they're in. If you go into Marks and Spencer's and in Skillin, you've got it priced in euros and in pounds. And it doesn't seem to be a problem there because they all nip back and forward over the border to, border to do their shopping, but it's cheaper on one side or the other. Yeah. Okay, um, next up we have uh, Bill. Hi, Andy. Yeah. You you have described an almost perfect economic system and the post-war actually government implemented some or most of these ideas. So what went wrong in the 1970s and how does Scotland stop that kind of going wrong? Right. Well, the period that I described was a period of the Keynesian, was Keynesian economics because uh, John Maynard Keynes was a civil servant when uh, the Labour government uh, came to power under that And It was his advice and his uh, ideas that really uh, backed up that system. He died very shortly after that, actually. He died only a few years after the Labour came to power. But the ideas lasted, and they lasted for a considerable period of time. Because as I pointed out, those ideas of full employment, etc., continued long after the Labour government had gone. So the ideas were pretty powerful. And you're right that it's around about the 70s when um, a lot of these ideas, the idea of full employment, the idea of, um, uh, you know, the regular steady investment to meet, uh, to, to deal with the employment situation, disappeared. The Tories wanted nothing to do with it. And along came the new ideas, the neoliberalism that we've now been trapped into. That came along at that time and caused a great deal of difficulty. Now, why did it go, why did we abandon it? Because it wasn't only in Britain, it started in Britain actually, but it wasn't only in Britain, it happened right throughout the whole of Europe. And the Scandinavian countries, which we are so impressed with now, adopted it from, from Britain. They adopted it from what Britain was doing at that time, the Labour government, and they adopted the Keynesian ideas. And it's those Keynesian ideas that are still strong in the Scandinavian countries, in which we're talking about returning to. You know, which I'm talking about, we ought to be returning to. Now, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong was that it didn't suit the powers that be. The powerful forces in, um, in capitalism didn't like the Keynesian idea at all. Because what it started to do was it started to give considerable power to working people. If there's full employment, working people become much more powerful. And if working, working people become much more powerful, they'll demand a greater share of the, of the 
profits of the industry. And that wasn't liked at all by, by the wealthy and the powerful. But then you remember, well, I remember, because I'm of that age, but I remember very well that the arguments at that time was, oh, it's causing inflation. The, uh, the Keynesian model is causing inflation. That was in the 70s. There was inflation starting to rise significantly in the 70s. There wasn't during the period of the Labour government. There wasn't at all. But there was in the 70s because the Tory government had abandoned the, the investment policy of the, of the Labour. They had abandoned parts of the Keynesian model and they had adopted an entirely different one. And they were now saying to us, look, we're getting inflation because of this situation, because of this Keynesian idea. But it wasn't a Keynesian idea, it was a, moving away from Keynesianism that they were doing that, had, that, that caused a lot of the problems. And if, that's not, if that wasn't clear then, and it wasn't clear then to a lot of people, it's very clear now, because we can see what's happened since uh, that time. Um, so yes, uh, it's um, I, I, I'm, I am arguing not something new, but going back to something that worked effectively in the past. But economics is a dynamic system, and the world we're living in now is a different world from the world we lived in then. And the investment we need to make now is quite different from the investments we needed to make then. So uh, the system changes all the time. We ought to move with it and move in advance, but we ought not to lose the knowledge of what happened in the past and what's useful. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a few comments in the chat section. Uh, do you want to raise them up? Is it Leah? You've got one about pensions? Yes, yes. There's been a flurry of letters in the newspapers in the just past couple of days about pensions, and this is Pensioners for Independence. So I know a lot of people are very concerned that was an issue in 2014 during the referendum. So what's the best way to respond to people who express concerns that their pensions won't be paid? Should we become independent? And I think the 2014 manifesto said the Scottish government would take on the obligation to pay. Is that still the case? Yeah. Yes, well, the pensions system that we have in Britain, which incidentally is one of the poorest in, in Europe in terms of return to the pensioners, is not funded, you know, it, it's not funded, um, not pre-funded in any way. It, it, it's uh, the people who are paying the, the pension today uh, are the ones who are working and they're, and the ones who are drawing it are getting it from the immediate people who are uh, uh, contributing to it. So if you change over from uh, from Scotland to, if you change into Scotland away from Britain, there'll be a number of changes, but the fundamentals will remain the same. In other words, the people who are contributing to the pension will still be contributing, but they'll be contributing to the, the Scottish system and the people who will be drawn will be drawn from it, you know, in the same way as they did then. Uh, and the obligations remain, the legal obligations remain. You know, my pension is tied to, my private pension is tied to legal obligations that will come from England, they'll still be the same as they were before. But 
there are some significant differences. Uh, one of the significant differences is that because of the appalling economic situation in Scotland over a long period of time, the people in Scotland die earlier than they do in England uh, as a whole. And in some areas, the, 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 the difference is quite stark. You know, it's quite huge. So that means that if you look at the system as it works today, it's probably true that the Scottish pensioners are subsidising the pensioners in the rest of the UK because they're helping them out by dying earlier, um, you know, and they're paying, you know, they contribute in the same basis. So if you change that round uh, to the Scottish people paying towards their own pensions and continue it that way, that immediately saves Scotland quite a bit of money, but we hope to get rid of that savings because we hope to increase the, the, the standard of living and the, and the rate of death uh, of, of the elderly. So over time, we would hope to change that. But the principles are the same. There is no real problem about the pension. It's a wee bit like the argument about, well, we got this money from, uh, from the, the, the British government to help people out during the COVID-19 because we bor they borrowed money and we couldn't borrow it. Well, that's true because they've got a central bank and we haven't. And so they did it that way. But if we had our own, we would, we would have done, perhaps not borrowed it, perhaps done it in another way, but we would have been able to operate it in exactly the same way. The same is true of the pensions. The, the, there's no fundamental problem there. There's plenty of ground for people to raise fears and concerns. The Project Fear has got a field day in the areas like that. It has a field day right in the whole currency area. That's why we need to examine the currency area carefully. Okay, thank you. Um, next we have uh, Lynn Jones. Jim's question earlier was uh, about um, building big infrastructure. What, what happens if um, uh, the contracts go to some foreign company, a Chinese company or something, to build some big infrastructure. Uh, doesn't that mean that the money would go out of the country so that we wouldn't get the multiplier effect that you described earlier? A lot of the money does not come to people who spend it locally. Yes, you're absolute, that's absolutely true. If you, you take, the, take the example of England at the moment where they're talking about building these nuclear power stations. Uh, France is going to build the, the power stations, the Chinese are going to finance it, and the, and the people in England are going to pay very high rates for their power in order to pay back the Chinese and the, and the French. Now, you're absolutely correct that if you think in terms of the multiplier, which I was explaining earlier, if that if you put investment into Scotland and you employ people in Scotland on low incomes, you get a higher return from the multiplier. Um, and that was what I was referring to. Oh, you're absolutely right. If you spend the money in France and you get the French workers working on the project, 
then you don't get multiplier. You know, multiplier works, but it works in France. It doesn't work in it doesn't work in Britain, um, and uh, this is true. So, in terms of your central policy of investment, you have to have a policy which looks at the whole range of things. That's why you need a central bank. If, if you look at our views on the central bank, it has certain responsibilities. One of those, as well as producing the level of currency required and being the sole issuer of currency, not allowing anybody else to produce currency, only the central bank in Scotland for the Scottish currency. But as well as that, you need control of your exchange mechanisms, uh, of your trade balance of trade, and examining that and keeping that in mind so that you can see if you need to adjust your currency in certain ways for certain goods because of the nature, because of, you're going to have a problem with balance of payments. That's one you have, that the central bank can do and needs to do. But the other important area of uh, development is this question of uh, investment, the investment policy. Investment in uh, the, uh, the, um, the Scotland that we're thinking about, and the one that we were uh, writing about, is invest, investment to try and ensure that you're running the economy at its optimum. Now, that's easy to do when you've got, when you start off with mass unemployment, uh, underemployment. It's easy to do then because you, you know, you can almost any investment will create employment and, 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 and growth. But once you get near full employment, there are problems about the investment program and how it should be organized. And that's a duty that we lay on the central bank with the government, you know, to, to look at how that, that the investment policy is functioning. Because if you overinvest at a time when you've got full employment, you will get inflation. That will create an inflationary situation. So that you want to avoid. But um, yes, you're right that these problems, the system is a dynamic system. And these problems are not ones you can solve and walk away from. You have to keep your eye on it. You have to keep, keep it on the ball. And that's why you have to have a central bank which has different functions and, and, uh, and which is under different control for different reasons. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jim Stamper uh, has a supplementary question to that, Jim. More or less along the same lines, um, what you were saying about the multiplier, people who are poorer uh, get money, they're going to spend it rather than invest it and tuck it away somewhere. But the, is there a problem now with so many people just going online and buying stuff from China via Amazon rather than going to their local places and buying it? I mean, half half the problem is that things that Scotland used to produce, clothing or everything like that, we really don't do hardly anymore. Well, looking at that problem, Jim, and looking at history, looking at economic history, you get, uh, there are people uh, who would take the view that the Russian economy took after the war, where they really had what you might call a control economy, a demand, a command economy, where you, you ignore to some extent 
the market and you say, no, no, we'll, we'll determine. The, the government knows better than they'll determine it. That was an absolute disaster in the Soviet Union. You know, it, it didn't work. It was an absolute disaster. So the market, going back to the ideas of the market, produced or uh, first explained, let's say, by Adam Smith in Scotland, um, is a mechanism that is important and plays an important function in the economy. And so we wouldn't want to move away from the, a market arrangement. But on the other hand, if you adopt a completely free market situation, allegedly free market situation, where the market is uh, the deciding factor and the government and the rest of us don't play a role we all say, oh, we can't do anything about it. It's the market that's determining it. That laissez-faire argument is not acceptable. It doesn't work. It's not valid. You know. So what you need is something more in line with the Keynesian idea of a managed market. You operate the market, but you have you manage it. You control it now. When it comes to what people want to buy, uh, at the end of the day, if you've got a managed market system, it's what people want to buy that will determine the market. <laughs> not, not whether you think they should buy it or whether you think you know, that it's wise. That wouldn't be, that's not for us to decide, it's for them to decide. That's how a market system works. People make their decisions themselves. They often sometimes regret the decisions they made afterwards, but they do it. Now, what happens then uh, if you're managing the market is if that were the case, well, the reason why the Chinese and Amazon and these big companies have got so much power is be not because of the market. It was because they, of power that they used to abuse the market system and get control. And it's now not free... Uh, you, you, people go to Amazon because very often you, there's nowhere else you can go because all of the bookshops that we used to have, the small private uh, bookshops are all gone. You know, we can, you have to go to somebody like Amazon to get all of that material that was once available in, from various places. So it's not really, it's not, we wouldn't be arguing that it's the market that's the problem. We'd be arguing that it's the structure of how the market is now, which is the problem. And what we need to do is to manage the market in each economy. And Scotland, we're a small country like Scotland, we need to have control of our aspect of the market. But we don't need to prevent, we don't uh, need uh, to interfere with people's choices within that market. But you can interfere with that in a way by changing prices and structures. Okay, thank you. And our last question is from Isabel. Right, okay. Um, just a quick question, basically. Um, from what you said in your introduction, uh, I want to know if I'm thinking um, the increases in pensions um, and perhaps introduction of universal basic income would actually be a really great stimulus for the economy. And so it would be a win-win for everybody. 
Absolutely. You're absolutely right. The best thing, the very opposite from um, from the um, quantitative easing, which meant that they put billions of pounds into the hands of wealthy people who didn't spend it. It didn't work. They didn't spend it. They put, they banked it and they put it into the value of the shares of their own companies. And they used that public money in that way and it didn't work. But if you had used a quarter of that money in the way that you suggested and put it into the hands of people on low incomes, that would work. That would work. Absolutely no doubt about that. Because strangely enough, those people on low incomes would go and bloody spend it. And exactly. Yeah. And the very thing that the economy needs is demand. And there yeah. you get demand just like that, you know, if you did that. So you're right. And that's why if you take a sort of Keynesian approach, as we are, as we are suggesting um, in Scotland, then you will get a big increase in demand and you'll be able to develop the economy. Martian, way to go then. That's the way to go. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again, Andy. That was an excellent talk. Uh, food for thought for everybody, I think. Um, um, if, the, if you wish, I will send out the link to your website to all those who attended. Uh, that they can read further on it and may even buy some of your books. Yes, well, they're most welcome to do that. And also, um, to get, to contact me on on issues that they're struggling with. If you're struggling with something and you think, I, I can't really get my head around this, what's this all about? Uh, give me an email and say, look, I'm looking at this and it, I, can't, I can't get this or I don't agree with this. Uh, I'll, I'll give for help I can on that. Okay, I'll send that information out to everybody in right. an email. And thanks again for an excellent talk. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Fabulous. Thanks very much.